0: and welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel E. Lopez, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Andy and Gwen Stern Community Lawyering Clinic at Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law. We will discuss her article, The Law of Gravity, which will be published in the Columbia Journal of Transnational Law. So welcome to the show, Rachel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, the pleasure's all mine. As soon as I saw the title of your article, I had to read it just because it was such a great title. Um, but for listeners who might be thinking you're talking about like outer space law or something <laughs> like that, what kind of what what kind of gravity are are you talking about here, and in what context is this article situated?
1: You know, when I um, came up with the title, it was before the pandemic, and there's been all these articles about Newton uh, sort of coming up with a law of gravity during the plague, and so I didn't realize <laughs> sort of the significance the title would have when I came up with it. Um, but it, but it has a uh, people have really really liked the title. Um, so what I'm talking about here is is neither related to to sort of outer space or Newton, um, but rather sort of how gravity is used. In international law. And the reality is, is that gravity is a concept that is very often evoked in international spaces. Um, It's frequently referenced in treaties, for example, in UN uh, resolutions and proclamations, judicial decisions of regional and international bodies, um, and human rights reports. Um, And what was interesting when I started to examine the issue is that You know, these bodies are really using terms interchangeably that connote gravity. So they'll talk about a certain violation as being gross, serious or grave. And they use these terms interchangeably. So sometimes people ask me, well, aren't they, you know, isn't serious different from gross or isn't grave different from gross? But what I found in looking at the primary um, sources was that, in fact, they were used to describe the same conduct and used interchangeably. And um, I guess, you know, you might say, well, well why does this matter? Um who cares how people are using gravity in international law if it's just rhetorical. Right. So we're, you know, people say sort of like a grave violation and that evokes a certain feeling, um, that you consider that's important. Right. Um, but the, you know, it's really significant how gravity is used legally at these various institutions. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So, um, for example, um, There are really significant violations um, that, um, sorry, there are really significant consequences to calling a violation particularly grave. So what do I mean by that? Well, international courts sometimes only have jurisdiction over grave violations of international law. So the international court, um, sorry, so the international criminal court only has jurisdiction over serious violations of humanitarian law. There's also instances when states cannot sell arms or weapons to other states that have committed grave violations of human rights and humanitarian law. So in other words, a state can't defend itself if it's been found to have um, violated not just any violation, but a grave violation of human rights law. Um, Gravity has also been used as a justification for military intervention and for punishing states more harshly when they commit violations of international law. Well, so one one question that I had,
0: Rachel, in in reading the paper and and recognizing the way that. You know, you point out that there are different terms that seem to be kind of used to reach the same ends. I mean, I I wonder if there are any reasons you think why that the term gravity might have connotations that make it a sort of preferred or kind of default term for the concept that you're talking about. In other words, you know, different terms kind of have different connotations. Do you think in a way that the concept of gravity captures what's at stake better than other terms you mentioned, like serious or gravity? Or do you think that it's sort of six of one and half dozen of the other?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's some things. To, I, I thought about this question quite a bit um, in terms of why is grave the one that seems to be? Why does it evoke more emotion? Um, and I think that it's because it's it's not. Sort of part of our common language, right? When we hear something as a grave violation, we think of sort of um, something that is be you know beyond the pale, something that is not in the ordinary, not just sort of everyday seriousness, but something that really um, implicates um, things that are most concerned to us, and that really is reflected in international law. Um, as I'll get to in a minute, really, when we're talking about grave violations, we're talking about what do we consider as a globe? What do do we in the world think is the worst of the worst? What do we think really threatens all of mankind? And that's really what the gravity sort of concept is getting at. Why do we care as an international community that these violations are happening? Um, and, And that's really what this sort of term is connoting.
0: Mm. Well, has gravity always been a defining feature of of international law?
1: Yeah, um, that was one of the things that really actually surprised me as I was doing this research is that I learned that um, there was a lot of historical precedent for what we now see in modern international law. So Hugo Grotius, um, who is considered by um, many people to be sort of the father of modern international law, Evoke gravity when he was sort of designing what was sort of um, a model for what became modern international law. And he really saw three instances in which states could take countermeasures, so in other words, could punish other states. The first was they could do it in self-defense. The second was they could do it when their own uh, sort of nationals or subjects were um, a victim of a violation by another state. But the third and you know most significant for my paper is that he thought that states were able to punish other states when they committed grave or gross violations of the law of nature and nations. And what that meant was that they didn't have to have any connection or any nexus to the violation. They could act because the violation was so atrocious and so of concern to the international community as a whole. And so that really is the foundation, the historical uh, foundation for the concept that has emerged today. Mm. Well, so, I mean,
0: how then does the modern concept of gravity differ from the sort of initial concept introduced by Grotius, if at all? And sort of like how, as a general matter, do courts and other international bodies use the concept of gravity in order to determine whether a particular action violates international law?
1: Yeah, I guess to understand how gravity is used in the modern day, you have to understand a little bit about how international laws change. And so what we see is after World War I and World War II, there was really a change in focus. We didn't want states to be able to act unilaterally to punish international crimes. And so there was a desire to sort of engage in more collective enforcement of international law through intergovernmental institutions in an effort to maintain international peace and security. And so Gravity then, you know, the the sort of what happened subsequent to that decision was the various legal regimes, since states were not acting unilaterally, they had to agree. They had to consent to be bound and to some extent to delegate their authority to punish to other institutions, right? And not all states are willing to do that at the same level. And so we see kind of what's been noted by numerous international international law scholars, a fragmentation across the various legal regimes. So we have international criminal law, which punishes individuals and prosecutes and convicts individuals. We have international humanitarian law, which governs how states can act in times of war. And we have international human rights law, which limits what states can do to their own citizens and the citizens of others. And across these various um, bodies, gravity has been used in really significant ways, both to conserve the resources of these intergovernmental institutions. So what I mean by that is that they—that's how they decide if they're going to act—is if it's of sufficient gravity to, you know, warrant doing something as a body, um, and also sort of in a way that. Um, You know, states kind of uh, use gravity to some extent um, to conserve resources. So it kind of was able to um, act as a filtering feature in international law so that they weren't trying to do everything at once. The other function, as I mentioned, you know, states didn't want to all consent to the same level or, or I guess, delegate their authority in the same way. And so to some extent, when states disagreed, but they wanted some sort of larger enforcement body, gravity was used as a vehicle to mediate disagreement. And that's why I think it was left intentionally grave. They didn't want to define gravity because they worried that states would then opt, opt out of these enforcement, international enforcement mechanisms.
0: Mm. Well so your your paper is titled The Law of Gravity and and so I was wondering if you could talk about the concept of gravity in sort of a legal sense because it almost seems like you know based on my reading of your paper that there's almost like kind of a common law of gravity or I guess maybe in this case it would be a customary international law of of gravity like what are the features that courts and international bodies look to, to determine whether or not a particular action is grave or not.
1: Yeah, I guess I just want to, um, before I get into that, I want to just explain why I think it's so important um, to sort of be more crystallized and more, um, less abstract about what gravity is. And, and the reason is that I, that I determine the factors that I'm going to discuss with you is because, you know, we think that we know a grave violation when we when we see it. We think because we have deeply felt beliefs about what constitutes the worst of the worst in terms of international crimes, that all people hold those same feelings. Um, but what social science tells us is that that's not actually true. What we think to be the worst of the worst, in fact, is deeply influenced by our race, our class, where we're from. Um, So all of these things mean that gravity can be really subjective to some extent. And so that's why I really felt it was important to the extent that I could, to try to crystallize common ground amongst the various international institutions and courts that I examined and see really what is sort of the universal characteristic, what is, as you said, kind of like the, the common law or the customary international law of gravity. And I really found that there were um, three primary determinants of gravity in international law. Um, I'll say them all, and then I'll explain what each of them mean. But the three are, first, it has to be um, universally condemned by the international community as a whole to be a grave violation. Second, it has to be, um, you know, there has to be a severe harm to human beings. And the last is it has to be committed deliberately by the actor. Um, And these are the primary determinants, which means that without the presence of all of these three, um, it is not considered at a baseline to be a grave violation in the international sense of grave violation, meaning that international institutions have um, a basis of authority to act on them. And that's important for um, a variety of reasons that I'll hopefully get into later on in the interview. But so what do I mean? when I talk about something being universally condemned, it really means what we talked about before. So it means that the international community believes that this is of concern to all of us as a whole, and that um, basically the act or the conduct is considered to be universally recognized as impermiss- impermissible under international, international law. So that's sort of um, the first one. The second one is the um, extent of the harm, sort of the se- you know the severity of the harm. And what I found that was really interesting to me, it, it was not, as maybe some people might think, the number of victims that's important here. Um, there were really two ways in which something could be a grave crime under this factor, which is um, the first is that there would be a limited number of people, maybe even one person who was... Um, harmed so severely that it was considered to be a grave crime. So we can think, for example, of the extrajudicial killing of Khashog- a Khashoggi as a great example of this. It drew great international condemnation on the whole, even though it only involved one individual. The other circumstance is that when a violation is so widespread and uh, you know, systematic that the cumulative harm to numerous individuals makes it grave. So it may not be as severe to one individual as the loss of life or um, torture, but the, the collective harm is so severe that it amounts to a grave violation. So we can think, for example, of, you know, mass evictions or um, internal displacement of whole populations to be a good example of a, of a grave crime or a grave violation of international law. Under the second prong, the last of which, um, which to me is really the most interesting and might actually um, kind of result in a next project for me is um, the crime must have or the violation must have been committed deliberately. Now, when I tell people that, they say, well, of course, you know, in criminal law, you require, require mens rea oftentimes. So that makes sense to me. But I guess the part that was so interesting to me was that this is also required when we're talking about state responsibility, when we're talking about punishing states. And and the question that kind of is interesting to me is, that, well, how do you determine kind of the mens rea of of a government, of a state? Um, and that's something I'd like to explore at some point down the line as well. So that's sort of the primary factors. Um, there's also sort of a set of aggravating factors that make a violation, once it's sort of reached this initial third hurdle of being um, a grave violation that warrants punishment at the international scale, there are certain things that make a grave violation worse. Um, one is if it is targeted toward a particularly vulnerable population such as children or women or the disabled. We also really are concerned about um, abuses of authority. So when a state actor is involved or someone that has a cloak of authority and they use that authority to abuse, we are more concerned and it's um, particularly grave. And finally, and this is particularly important when we're thinking about um, non-violations that may not to an American audience seem particularly grave. So economic and social rights, for example, deprivations of health and housing, which have not traditionally been recognized in the U.S. as fundamental rights, but on the international scene are. um, This this particular prong is really significant for those type of violations. So when a violation goes on for a long or prolonged period of time, it can also be considered to be a factor that makes it more grave. So one example that was really interesting that I found was um, a prolonged closure of schools was found to be a grave violation by the African Commission on Human and People's Rights um, because it, it was a grave violation of the right to education, for example.
0: Mm, well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of kind of wanting to mitigate the subjectivity or cultural specificity of um international law and concepts of what constitutes a violation of international law i mean i mean h- how do you think the concept of gravity and how it's deployed by international bodies and international courts helps to sort of universalize or encourage i guess sort of agreement among those institutions and among states about what constitutes a violation that merits intervention of some kind
1: yeah, I, I guess I'll start a little bit of kind of the the concern here. What is my fear? Why did I write this article in the first place? And really, what I see is that um, the subjectivity—I like—I like how you frame it in that way um, of gravity. Unfortunately, is either been, you know, in my opinion, um, both substantiated, but but oftentimes is criticized as being. Um, manipulated by political actors. And I'll give you sort of one one good example of this. So, for example, the International Criminal Court um, was asked to investigate um, violations by U.S. and U.K. soldiers in Iraq. There was, of course, as we now well know, lots of accusations around torture and other cruel and unusual punishment happening during the Iraq war. And the prosecutor declined to investigate the situation in Iraq because he said that there were, um, he really based it on the number of victims. He said, well, there were less than 20 um, victims, and that doesn't compare to violations in other countries such as Uganda, the DRC, and Darfur. Um Interestingly, the ICC has since gone back on that um, determination, but the part that was really um, subject to criticism was in the same breath, he said, but I'm not saying that the number of victims is important to the gravity. I'm just saying that in this instance, they're not enough. Um, and, And the context of this is what really drove the critiques. So at the same time that this case was pending before the ICC, the U.S. was really sort of going on a full out attack on the ICC. So the Congress, uh, our Congress and the U.S. adopted an amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act, the Foreign Assistance Bill, that would basically mean that people that were state parties to the ICC um, would get cuts to their, their foreign assistance if they were unwilling to sign uh, an agreement with the U.S. saying they would not extradite U.S. citizens to the ICC and so really what what the criticism was, well, this decision by the prosecutor was not about the number of victims, um, but rather um, it was about sort of the pressure that the U.S. was putting on that institution at the time. And so that's sort of the fear is this political it's it, you know, it, it results in kind of unfortunately um, the gravity of it or sort of the malleability of gravity Um permits these sorts of critiques. And I think that the, the, the benefit of being a little bit more measured, a little bit more concrete about what we're describing here is that then there is a firm legal basis, legal reasoning that constrains how these, um, international actors can sort of, what rationale they can use as a basis for initiating, uh, you know, initiating um, investigation, a criminal investigation, um, levying sanctions, all these things sort of turn on, you know, or can turn, should turn, I believe, on a more reasoned approach to gravity and and, and a more universal application across the board.
0: Well, so in the article you identify like some sort of the the – almost like the doctrine of gravity in international law and the features that characterize that doctrine. I wonder if you found sort of doctrinal variations among international bodies in courts in how they sort of interpret or conceptualize the concept of gravity. In other words, is there a a relative uniformity across institutions or did you find kind of institutional variations?
1: I was surprised to tell you the truth about Oftentimes, so I guess I should say as the first caveat, oftentimes they are not actually defining what they, they'll classify something as a grave violation, but they won't actually say why. And so that's probably the most common um, use of gravity is, is sort of this unexplained, undefined use. But when it is defined, interestingly enough, you know, that's where this these kind of determinants or factors that I develop in the paper emerge from because they are fairly universal, which was really surprising to me. Um, as someone who sees a lot of variation across international bodies on the whole. And so I think there is some sort of universal consensus, at least around what we consider to be the factors that we care about. The problem I think here, and, and why I think this paper is so important, is that um, oftentimes there is room to just allow it to be kind of rhetorical or sort of a nebulous concept because it's not... Um, You don't necessarily have to run through a certain set of criteria to decide that something's grave. And that's really where the risk is in this concept.
0: So in in the paper, you also talk about two kind of philosophically distinct concepts of what constitutes a violation of international law, namely uh, use cogens and On this violations. And I I just think those are really interesting concepts with interestingly different histories. And I wonder if you could talk about each one of those concepts and sort of how they relate to the concept of gravity. And I guess one question that I kind of had was, it seems like they were initially philosophically distinct from each other. Do you think they've kind of merged into each other historically? uh, Or are there still distinctions that matter and are worth paying attention to?
1: Yeah, I, I really think that there are very important distinctions and international scholars sometimes do merge the two. But but really, if you look closely at the jurisprudence and I'm talking about modern day, you know, recent decisions by the International Court of Justice, distinguishing the two in very important ways. So use Cogan's um, norms are those norms that are accepted and recognized by um, international, like sort of an international community of states, as a norm from which no derogation is permitted. That means that under any circumstance, you are not able to violate this norm. Examples include genocide, crimes against humanity, slavery, um, piracy, racial discrimination, apartheid, torture. These are some of the examples of, of norms. and and there's no circumstance, it doesn't matter if if we're at war, it doesn't matter if there's a pandemic, Um, you can never deviate from these universally recognized um, norms. Um, And that relates to sort of one of the factors that that I elicited earlier, which is the universally condemned as a grave violation. Um, So that's one of the factors that, that is important for determining that a violation is grave. Now, ergo omnes obligations, they can flow from use Kogan's norms. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, a use, if you violate a use cogens norms, obligations, ergo omnis are triggered. So what does that mean? ergo omnis obligations, in contrast to use Kogan's, are legal duties that are owed by the international community as a whole, meaning that all states have an interest in their protection. This allows states, arguably, um, to do things that they otherwise could not be. So in that way, it, it really connects up with Grotius' um, understanding of gravity um, you know, before long ago. Um, and, and so the, the interesting piece about this, though, is that though, as I mentioned before, international scholars seem to merge the two. So if you have a violation of a Use Kogan's norm, so if you have genocide, automatically ergo omnis obligations are triggered so there's sort of this symbiotic relationship between and that is that is true but the interesting part, and I guess really my contribution to the doctrine around, um, of, you know, the doctrine of gravity in international law, is that there's a whole set of, um, there's a whole second category of violations that trigger inter, uh, trigger ergo omnis obligations that are not violations of Kogan's norms. So we're really getting to the weeds here, uh, which I apologize for, for the non-international legal scholars. But to me, this is so important and so essential and interesting in the sense that there are these other set, this other category of violations that are undefined. We don't really know what they are, but we know at least the ICJ, ICJ, so the International Court of Justice has said that they violate basic um, humanitarian values. And what I argue in the paper is that really that's gravity, grave violations are the set of violations that do that. And so kind of fill out our understanding of ergo omnis obligations, meaning that so we have a violation of use Kogan's norm that triggers ergo omnis obligations, but also grave violations that may necess- not necessarily be violations of use Kogan norms um, implicate obligations ergo omnes. Hopefully, that's not too in the weeds for your audience. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, not 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 at all. Well, so, I mean, Rachel, you also talked about earlier about the concept of intentionality or intentional violations. Um, you know, what does that mean in context? And does a violation always have to be like kind of the state acting in order for it to constitute a violation of international law? Or is there the potential for violation
1: through inaction as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So, Yes, and intentionality seems to be one of the universal universal determinants of whether something is grave. So, the international community as a whole cares more about about violations that are committed intentionally. Now, I found one interesting exception to this that I don't know if I really agree with, but um, there's this principle or this emerging principle called um, the responsibility to protect. And what that means is that when states are unwilling or unable to act, other states have rights to sort of take countermeasures, or at least the Internet, uh, the Security Council has the ability to to act in those circumstances, to intervene, to protect those populations that are at most at risk. And so we see in that instance that it's not necessarily required that the state actually intend or act, but rather that they're unable to, to prevent the violation. And to me, that seems really out of line with um, the gravity principle that I'm sort of illuminating here in the sense that military intervention should always be the last resort. And I don't I don't believe that. um, And this is, I think, gets to the import of of principles that just because um, a state is unwilling or unable that military intervention should be allowed is, I guess, something that I think this, you know, what I'm sort of setting out here will help to constrain.
0: Mm. Well, so in closing, Rachel, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on why you think the principle or the concept of gravity is so important and the sort of the right way to think about international intervention in a legal sense i mean you know why shouldn't states intervene whenever there's a violation of international law why should we limit intervention to grave violations like why why do we want this kind of limiting factor in international law
1: well, I think there's, you know, there's a there's a lot of answers to that question. The first is kind of a resource question. So if states were allowed to act on every single violation of human rights, um, you know, it would just be sort of. I think there would be an escalation of intervention that would essentially vitiate any sovereign rights that states have. And so we allow states to sort of have at least an initial attempt at correcting violations that occur within their own countries. And the reason why a grave violation is different from sort of like your run-of-the-mill violation that might be committed by either state or non-state actors within a territory. Is it often when a violation is particularly grave, there is some sort of vitiation of the social contract between sort of the sovereign power and their citizens, right? And so they the you know the sovereign is supposed to protect at its essence um the citizens, the the people that are subject to its rule. And if it's failing to do that, there's a greater concern not just for the citizens in that country, but for, for more broadly, peace and security worldwide. And that's the real reason why gravity is seen as a threshold amongst um, you know, international actors is because that's, once it sort of reaches a certain tipping point, um, it really threatens the peace and security of the globe. Um, And we find that oftentimes when there is a grave violation, it really is, um, it implicates there might be something more deeply wrong with how that state is governing its own people and and raises the question of whether we need international action or intervention in that instance.
0: Hmm. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this fascinating, uh, fascinating paper. I-, I learned a lot about international law, and I hope listeners who found the interview interesting will will check out the article as well.
1: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You've made for me since the day we met Heaven on earth, it's all been so thrilling You've